Welcome to the Level Up Artist Podcast. We are your hosts, Adriana M.A. and Jackie Sanders. We're two art professionals sharing for the advice and business lessons we have learned along our creative journeys. We talk to artists, leaders, and art professionals to demystify the creative process and discover new ways to succeed as a career-minded artist. If you find value in these conversations, please go ahead and subscribe. This will help other creatives like you find our podcast and you'll be notified when we drop new episodes every Tuesday. So on today's episode, we are so delighted to invite and welcome back uh, Cynthia Deese to the podcast. Welcome, Cynthia. Hey, folks. I'm so glad to talk to you about this today. We're so glad to have you. So in case you aren't familiar with her yet, Cynthia is the Artswell Education Director for one of the wonderful local art nonprofits in our area, Triangle Artworks. Uh, We last spoke to Cynthia a little over a year ago, back on episode 93. Give it a listen if you haven't yet. So Cynthia is joining us today as we dive deep into a topic that's often a challenge for many, many, many creatives. (laughs) Yes, and this challenging conversation is one that we have faced as artists. We we feel the questions of others, and Cynthia does as well, which is pricing artwork. So why is it so notoriously difficult? Why does it stir up those emotions and cultural complexities that we all face? And most importantly, how can we as artists navigate these challenges to establish a consistent and fair pricing structure for our business? Because Cynthia, offline, we spoke a little bit and you mentioned um, that several artists were reaching out to you with lots of questions about pricing artwork. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and how those conversations were going? Well, in part of this time of year, right? Like we're recording this in February. People are doing their taxes. They're looking at their last year Mm -hmm. and they're suddenly thinking, oh my gosh, my prices, something's wrong. Something's not adding up here. Um, I think for a lot of artists, they're, they are thinking about their pricing structure and worried about how much they can make. And they, they're sort of asking themselves the wrong questions. They're asking themselves the emotional questions or sort of the like, you know, big, like, you know, big dreams questions. And they're not actually looking at the most important question, which is how much is it costing you to be an artist? Like, what are your costs? So um, I spend a lot of time talking to artists about that. <laughs> yeah, those are some really good <laughs> ones. And... them out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. And it's like depending, I mean, everybody's financial situation is different. And for some folks that do this on the side for fun that maybe have a full-time job that finances the art, then great, you know, you're you're fantastic. But then for those folks that are either looking to make the shift or they depend somewhat on the income from art, then it's like, no, we need to have the serious conversation. Let's let's do some math. Actually, even if you do it as a hobby, do the math anyways and just like figure out if you're okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna just interject there, Adriana. Like it even if even if you're if you want to if you want to do art as a hobby and you want to like make whatever you make and give it to people, like go ahead. That's great. But once you start to take money for your artwork, you're pushing it into the business realm, whether it's legitimate or not, whether it's full-time or not, you're pushing it into that business realm. Once you start to push your artwork into that business realm, you need to really look at your costs and you need to look at that, at what it's costing you to be an artist. Even if most of your expenses are being paid by some full-time job, there's still costs with it. And it's not fair to yourself as a producer of artwork. And um, it's just not fair it's not not fair to you and it's also not fair to your work you know you really need to sort of um honor the labor that you put into it yeah absolutely well pricing artwork of course you know it can be it can be like trying to solve a puzzle that has pieces that are always moving on you so it's obviously I mean it as you go as you evolve you know your pricing needs to change with you um so we know that especially for emerging artists you know this is just like where do we even get started on this right and one of the biggest challenges of course is that for starters the value of artwork is already subjective you know unlike other products there are no industry standards you know like milk gallon cost 
X. Car of this size starts at X. Or it can be anything, right? So um, to get us kind of rolling on this, what kind of advice would you offer artists who are trying to navigate the subjective nature of their art's value when there's actually no standardized pricing in the quote-unquote art world? <laughs> yeah, well, so so the subjective nature of it is if you think about the price of a piece of artwork, the subjectiveness is actually just in the eyes and the pocketbooks of the purchaser, really, right? Like, um, if I'm purchasing a piece of artwork to put in my house, my decision, my price decisions, um, they are somewhat subjective. Like, I have a certain amount of money I can spend, you know, I have... I like a certain shades of blue or I like certain, you know, in motifs or what have you. And so those things are subjective. Um, but from the producer, like from the artist's standpoint, your, um, you, you, your price can certainly go up, but it's actually not very subjective at all, right? Like it's math. You, if you have a studio rent that you have to pay, if you have to pay bills, got your Netflix account, whatever, like any expenses that you have, to live your life as a human being that exists in capitalism, that's not subjective. Those are numbers. They're hard, fast numbers. And if you start with those numbers and you sort of total all that up and you see that that's your amount that you pay, say, every year, and you know that you make, say, 200 paintings a year, well, you can divide that number by 200. And that's going to, like, super rough give you an average that you need to start your prices there. I mean, that is like the simplest way to put it. It's not subjective at all because Netflix is not subjective, right? Like their fee is the same every month. My grocery bill is kind of the same every week. That's not subjective. So um, I think that artists, though, we get confused because there's emotional overlays and there's just these ideas that there's these ideas that art prices are subjective, you know, and again, they're subjective for the purchaser. But the baseline price coming from somebody that makes art, that's just your baseline price. And that's what it is. If you're selling it below that price, you're giving it away. You're almost, it's even worse. You're like taking your art and like taping a $50 bill or $500 on top of it and then selling it, you know, <laughs> which is just, I mean, it's baffling to think that you would do that, but artists do it all the time. Absolutely. And I feel like, especially as an artist, I love the way that you define that, that it's subjective for the purchaser, because as an artist who's pricing it, it, it is difficult in that we as an artist are inherently emotional, have these connections with our art pieces. And inevitably, even when we try for it to not, there can be a relationship between maybe our emotional attachment to a piece and pricing decisions that we make. So if maybe there's a piece that we really love and we connect with versus one that maybe we were like really struggling with it, struggling to bring it to the surface, we may price one differently than the other. So do you have any practical tips for detaching that personal emotion, kind of that creative experience of what goes on in the studio and that magical moment of making the piece versus then okay, by the numbers, business side, selling it. Do you have any practical tips for detaching that personal emotion from it? Yeah, well, so that's one of the weird and cool things about art, right? Like if I'm a plumber, like I, you know, maybe I really love plumbing, but we're just going to assume I'm a regular plumber, right? And so I'm a plumber <laughs> and I come to somebody's house to put in these new pipes. Like I can give you an estimate and that's the estimate. I don't ever think as a plumber that, gosh, the fact that I really love to put that kind of pipe in, that I'm going to enjoy the process means that it should change the price in any way. Like mm -hmm. plumbers don't do that. They just charge you the price. Right. But as an artist, like just what you were telling me, Jackie, like I could hear it in your voice. Like you're yeah. thinking, well, I really love this experience. So like, you know, we're taking that experience that we love making our artwork and we're in some way thinking that because we love it, we can devalue that artwork to the purchaser. Like we're feeling like that makes that artwork less valuable to the purchaser or mm -hmm. that we don't, that, that we sort of have to pay for that fun we had or that like, uh, you know, that emotional experience that we have, that aesthetic experience that we had, that we sort of have to somehow pay for that when we sell our, when we pass our artwork on to the person that's going to own it. And 
I like, I don't have a great answer for that. The, the only, you know, answer that I have is that to compare yourself to other professionals. I mean, I always like to say artwork is one of the most blue collar professions out there and nobody ever thinks that it is like artwork is all about making the work. It is one, it is, it, are there cognitive aspects to it? Yes. Are there, you know, intellectual aspects to it? Yes. But really it's about making the work. You've got to put that effort in. You got to put those hours in your studio. You got to put those hours in front of your easel, your hours at your bench, whatever it is you do. It's a very, very blue collar job. And, but we sort of take that and that product. And then we put all this like weird sort of almost quasi religious overtones on it. But we're like, well, I feel too emotionally attached to this. And I had so much fun making it. How could I charge you more? Or I feel so emotionally attached to it. I had so much fun making it. It has to be better. You know, it has to be worth more, but that's not true at all. Like not to the purchaser, the purchaser mm -hmm. doesn't have that experience that you had that piece that you struggled with, that you feel like you really just, it just wasn't fun for you and you marched through it and you didn't enjoy it. That to a purchaser, that piece could be like better. It They like it better. It has the motif they like, or they like more of that colored green you used, or it's just the right shape for their table or what have you. Um, so it's really, it, it's a really tricky area with art that because because there's that emotional and sort of um, like almost quasi psycho-religious aspect to the production of artwork that I think we can get really lost in it when we're doing the pricing. And that's why I, I sound like a broken record on this, but like if you go back to your baseline, like if you figure out what your cost is for producing every piece of artwork that you make, and it's going to be a round number because everything's not the exact same. But if you figure out what your baseline cost is for everything you make, that can make your pricing easier. So it can help you over that hump and it can help you when you're looking at those, you know, you're a painter, right? Like, so when you're looking at two paintings side by side, and you're like, gosh, this one on the left, like I painted that over like two weeks and I was just like gliding on clouds every moment. I felt like, they, you know, angels came down and kissed my paintbrush when I was doing it. And like, you know, yeah. you've been to my studio along. recently. I see yeah. you've been on the clouds <laughs> I've been on. Let's go. I mean, yeah, I'm a painter. I get it, right? Like sometimes, <laughs> You work on something forever and you're like this was just like every moment was pure joy yeah and i've never <laughs> painted a better painting this is ever. i'm peaking right now this is the best yes. thing i'm ever yes. gonna make yes. in the world yeah 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 and then you have the other one and you're like oh this one like i struggled and i still don't actually like that color <laughs> green and blah 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 and you can like only see the flaws you know and you hated that experience but if those paintings are like the same size and, and again, you know, your baseline, you know, your output for the year, you know what your costs are. Those paintings should probably be about the same amount of money mm -hmm. yeah. unless, mm -hmm. unless there's something about them. Like, you know, I have an artist I work with and this is just her specific work. She has a specific motif that she sometimes uses. And she knows that when she uses that motif in her work, those works sell very fast. Always. So yeah. she, she doesn't want to only paint that motif, but if she sells them, if she makes them, they sell very fast. And she's like, yeah, I can just never keep them around. I'm like, well, then those need to, let's jump the price up on those are always 30% more. Like jack that. Yeah. yeah. And she's like, well, why should I do that? I'm like, if they're not sitting around, then you, and you don't want to only paint this motif, then make them more expensive. So they sit around a little longer and, yeah. you know, like, well, 10%. I'm like, no, 30%. If it's not 30%, it's not even a test. So she raised the price on those, that particular motif, 30%. They actually still sell about the same. She just makes 30% more for them. Yeah. Right. Awesome. Yeah. So, so like, you know, detaching it and, and oftentimes, you know, to answer your question, it can be super hard for artists to see that. So that is where you need an art buddy. You need a friend. You need, you need somebody who can look objectively at your work and be like, well, Every time you paint something with a goldfish, it sells really, really fast. Like let's, you know, jack up the prices on all the goldfish or every time you paint something with this color of green or this type of flower, or, you know, every time you make a pot in this specific color pattern or whatever, it sells really fast. Like you need, then you, then you can raise your price. But again, this is all happening on top of the idea that you know, your baseline that mm -hmm, you yeah. mm -hmm. know your cost to make artwork and you know what your production cap capability is 
and I'm using really like totally manufacturing terminology because like I said, art is a blue collar job, (laughs) you know, and we all swim in the sea of capitalism. We might not like it, but you know, that terminology can help you sort of de-emotionalize that experience of figuring out how much your artwork is worth. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I love that phrasing of art as a blue collar job because I honestly have not thought of it that way before, but you are so right, especially in that example of selling out pieces. I know there's a couple artists, um, mainly on Instagram that I follow who love their work, but they'll say this drop of prints or drop of a new painting series, we sold out within two hours, which on the surface level, especially when I first got started, I'm like, oh my goodness, that's amazing. I would love to sell out so quickly. Or, oh, I went to a market and I sold everything. Like, that's incredible. But now kind of a few years into it, thinking of pricing of that, my reaction now is, I think you need to increase your prices more in that if you're selling out that quickly, then you really need to increase your prices because clearly people are seeing the value of the pieces that you're bringing. They're connecting with it. Hopefully your marketing is in place, but if they're connecting that much, then to your point, Cynthia, you only have so many hours in a day. So wouldn't you love to sell less pieces and make the same amount of money or more rather than kind of that $1 hamburger or te- from McDonald's or $10 five guys hamburger. Like what kind of version do you want? <laughs> um, so I absolutely love that analogy. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Especially yeah, so- when thinking too of similar sizes. So like if there's two pieces that are three foot in size and one's drastically different price, people will be like, why is it that different than that? Unless there's a tangible reason you can explain it, then you're going to, not connect with your audience as well with that. Yeah. Right. And the thing is though, and I want to ask both of you this because I like to ask artists worry about that a lot. They're yeah. like, well, I, and this this particular person, she was worried about, right? This artist, she was worried about. She's like, well, I can't just raise those, the price on those. I'm like, why not? Like, mm-hmm. literally, why not? You know, she's like, well, because they're the same size as these. I'm like, well, those don't sell as fast. You know, you can raise the price on that. And, and then I asked her, I said, has anyone ever asked you why two different paintings were priced differently? This woman has been a painter for 25 years, had never been asked that question. You will not get asked that question. Or maybe you will, but it's not, it's not like every day. People don't ask that question because you know why? You go into any store in the mall and you pick up two pairs of jeans and they're diff- they look different and they're priced different. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. artwork, we as producers of artwork, we're like, well, this is a 36 by 48 canvas. This is a 36 by 40 canvas. Like these two have to be the same price. Well, again, they cost you the same amount. Mm-hmm. They make mm-hmm. functionally the same amount of paint on them. I'm giving all painting examples because you two are painters, but like, you know, they may have the same materials wise in them. But, but if I, as a consumer as a buyer as a patron of an artist come in I do not look at those paintings and say well they're the same size why are they different prices because you know what I only like one of them exactly right I like the red one because I want a giant red painting on my wall I don't care anything about that yellow one you have over here or I like the seascape because I don't yep. like mountains or whatever. I don't care that they're the same size. So that question, when artists start asking that question, I'm like, stop asking that question. No customer of yours is going to ask that question. It's And if they do, you just can be like, just flat out tell them the, you know, the goldfish paintings sell, say, sell way faster. My that's CK true. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. a super engaging well, conversation from a collector standpoint. Be like, well, this is from a higher demanded collection of mine. And therefore- yeah that is a higher value. They'd be like, oh, now I really want it. I want to pay that higher price. (laughs) And real collectors actually don't ask that question because they understand that. Because if you are like, you know, if you're Amy Sherrill or Donald Judd or one of those like people that billionaires are, you know, bidding for your paintings, like real collectors, they know that of artwork, the artwork of artists they collect, they know that like, oh, these, this series always more in demand. So I have to pay more for it. Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, they're already, 
Yeah. And the only, I think the only scenario in which I think a client may ask that I've seen, and it wasn't my art, it was somebody else's art, was because they were two similar paintings next to each other, about the same size, and one was like three times as much. And then the question came up, because that would yeah. be like the jean scenario. Why is this a $200 jean next to a $40 jean? You know, what's what's new in this one? But otherwise, if one's 30, one's 50, you just assume one's a little bit better than the other and you move on. Like you don't really right, right. question. Yeah. You go with which one can I afford? Which one fits better? Moving on. So that makes yeah. a lot of sense. I think you're right. As long as it's not like super mega ridiculous. And even then it might be justified. Like this one has 24 karat gold leaf on it. Boom. Right. That's why it's more expensive. This one's acrylic and this one has some fancy oil. Not that anybody really cares, but if they do ask, then I mean, whatever. Yeah. It's fine. I'm and, sure you'll have an excuse. To yeah, I mean, you'll have reason. a reason. You will have a yeah. reason, but honestly, it doesn't matter what your reason is because literally no one will ask you. Like, no yeah. one will. You know, and if because, they love it and they can afford it, they're going to buy it anyways. Right. And if they love it there and they is. can't afford it, then they're going to look for a smaller piece or a piece in your studio that they can't afford. You know, that's why yep. you have print while you do the other things. So, yeah. Yeah, which this example I just gave ties in perfectly because another one of the challenges in this that artists, you know, have is facing that fear of criticism or rejection when they're setting a price because they're either worried, uh-oh, am I charging too little? And then imposter syndrome comes in and all these doubts kind of like start, you know, snowballing. Or on the other hand, which I think this is the rarer example, am I charging too much? And I feel like those are the little more overconfident folks that are just like, I took one class and I charge you $5,000. You're like, you don't even know what color theory is, like moving on. But like, yeah. which again, you know, to each their own, to the, each their own. But um, for those artists that are in that, am I charging too much? Am I charging too little? Like any tips for finding that happy middle? I mean, yes, we're going to talk about the baseline, but at least from maybe from besides the math, let's say yeah. any tips from the emotional side of things. Let's just call it that for now. Right. Well, from the, you know, again, I am always going to want to start with that math, but because um, you can't really have a conversation. Like that. But, um, but the emotional side of it. Okay. So if an artist comes to me and they're, feeling like they're not confident in their work. So there's two answers to that. One is get back in your studio till you feel confident, which maybe that's hard, right? Like you're not going to really do that. Like realistically, maybe that you have personal things that you're never going to feel confident in your work. Okay. So then you got to go to answer number two and answer number two is to sort of do those things for yourself that are going to help you have confidence in your work. And for some artists, that's like journaling about why they work and their methodology and all the ways they've studied and sort of like literally making lists. I will tell people make lists. I want you to make a list of all, you know, I, ha I have, I have an artist that I work with a lot actually on the West coast who paints portraits and does amazing work, really, really amazing work and has studied everywhere, like all over the world and struggles with her pricing and struggles with feeling like she should, I should apply to this. She gets all these residencies and stuff. She's really talented, but she struggles with it like emotionally. And so I'm like, make lists of like, first of all, you've put in the hours, like the hours, going back to that blue collar thing. Like you are a master. You're not a journeyman. You're not an apprentice. Like you're a master at this. And, you know, so making a list, making lists of, of your skills, you know, you can can work in all these mediums, you know, maybe you're maybe you make jewelry and you do all these super complex techniques, you know, that you can draw on all of that every time you make a piece of jewelry. So, you know, like making think making lists of things can be a helpful technique. Also, again, I hate to say it, but sometimes that doesn't matter. You know, <laughs> like your emotional turmoil can be just it's not healthy probably but like you can like just box it suppress it compress it like <laughs> repress it you know do whatever you have to get do. therapy like, get therapy yeah, get therapy whatever you got to do but like just put it to the side and look at your work objectively know what your baseline is 
know what your throughput is on how much work you can make in a year. Look at prices that other artists in your area are charging for work that is, you know, within the same people who you feel are in the same career plane that you are and just price your stuff that way. You don't mm -hmm. have to over, you know, if you're, you know, if you are making, you know, if you're a potter and you are in a market where, you know, you do these really beautiful bowls, these, you know, hand thrown bowls with complex glazes and in your market, bowls like that sell for $200 and you do all your sort of baseline work, right? And you know that that is a reasonable price to charge for your bowls, then charge $200. Don't feel bad about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it there's nobody is, you are not holding a gun to anyone's head to make them buy your work. Don't mm -hmm. feel bad. Don't feel guilty. You know, just put the price on it. And then again, like take that box where you put all those emotions and all those like self doubts and everything, take that box and go to your therapist's office and open that box in there. <laughs> and deal with it. like it's not yeah. for your student, you know like that is a separate thing so yeah no and I'm glad you said too which I'll put a pin on it for now and and we'll do this a little bit later on on the fact that you said someone comparable because I'm like as someone who's taken wheel throwing classes I can tell you I do not have a $200 bowl in in my production I don't have the experience I don't have the mastery it, it also doesn't mean, hey, I just learned this overnight on YouTube and now I'm going to charge 200 So I'm glad you said that, but we'll come back to that because I do want us to talk a little bit more about the math, but we'll do that a little bit later on in the conversation about like how to actually figure out some of these formulas. For now, the other thing that I know artists, you know, when we talk to them, of course, being like public facing, you know, we get, we interact with a lot of artists um, over at Artspace, what our studios are, is this idea that we live in a culture that's flooded with cheap and mass-produced inexpensive art right like not to say anything about the quality of the creation of the art itself we're not even going to enter into ai generated art so not even a person necessarily it's a conglomeration of things that a formula spat out um so we're not even going to go into how that's going to be out in the market at your local uh, you know, grocery store, supermarket, homeware store, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, something that you mentioned earlier was that idea of like the subjective part is what your customer's willing to pay. Well, if your customer can go to Target or Walmart or whatever and get, you know, this large piece of art to go over their sofa, you know, for 20 bucks, let's say, and your equivalent is going to be, well, 2000 for the similar size of original, then, you know, there are artists that are like, how do we deal with customers who are reluctant to pay artists in general, just artists in general for their creative output and time. So do you have any advice on how artists can address customer expectations and maybe help educate them a little bit about the value of unique handmade art? I mean, I'm talking even if it is digital art, but you actually sat there on a tablet and you did it. You know, we're talking not like computer generated. Um, any advice on artists that are like facing this, like, I don't even know how to broach the subject when somebody goes, you're charging how much? Like I could get something at Walmart or Target or Home Goods or whatever. Because I've heard that. I've overheard those on yeah. um, art fairs. I've overheard yeah, that. Like people ask that. It's, yeah. it's, it's rough. It's rough. So, so that is like... Um... So I want to address that in two ways. I want to address it, address it emotionally and practically, right? So the first point is emotionally. How do you deal with that emotionally? Well, you know, if you're hearing that comment a lot at art shows, if you're like, it, first of all, how rude that people would say that to an artist anyway, but they do. But, right. or if you're hearing that when somebody's in your studio or at a market or something like that, like um, it, that is them talking about their financial situation. It is not about your artwork. It is them talking about what they can and cannot afford to purchase. Nobody, like, nobody has to have paintings on their wall or jewelry on their body or, you know, handmade mugs to drink out of. Like, nobody needs that. That is not a need in our world. Um, and, you know, historically, if you went back prior to like, you know, the use of mass market goods, people didn't have art on their walls. 
you know, they didn't like they, now you go in people's houses, everybody's house is decorated, right? Like decorated. They've got objects and stuff all around, but that is not how it used to be. Only the very wealthy had that. So then we had the advent of mass produced goods. And so people feel like, oh, I can have this too. That's just a painting that they're putting on their wall. So emotionally, the way that you can sort of deal with that is to recognize that them saying, I can get this at home goods. Well, they actually can't. They can get something to hang on their wall at home goods, right? <laughs> they can get something to, they can get a, you know, a bowl to put on their table at Walmart. Those, that is not them getting a piece of artwork. It's just a physical thing that occupies the same space as a piece of artwork, but it's not a piece of artwork. And so mm -hmm. that is more about them like talking about something that they feel is a perceived need that they have and their own financial situation. So they're expressing their own lack of funds, their own, you know, financial shortcomings when they say that. It is not about your work at all, right? That's just absolutely not about your work. So how do you deal with it? The same way you deal with it if like a five-year-old comes up and says, ooh, I hate your hair. You just like <laughs> laugh and move on. Like there's that is a person who's not really talking about you. You know, they're they're talking about their own situation. So that's kind of the emotional half of it, right? So then the practical half of it is that um so the stuff that's at home goods actually is made by artists. Like get on their website and get on, go to home goods and look up their manufacturers and start submitting work to them for licensing. Get your stuff, get your work licensed, you know, put your work on shower curtains and, you know, whatever, hand towels, any of that stuff. Like if you make 2d work, compete with yourself, like go ahead and do that. And, you know, if that is really bothering you, um, I mean, that's a practical way to deal with that. Um, Another practical way to deal with that is to compete with yourself by using like DTC, which is direct to consumer, like printers, you know, print on demand kind of places, put some like um, some of those like photo canvas wraps on your website or whatever. So if somebody's in your studio and they're like, oh, gosh, your paintings are just really beautiful, but I can't afford them. You can be like, well, I have a selected few that are on my website and you can order them and they're not hand print. They're not hand painted. They're photographs of my work. They're put on They're on their canvas prints. You know, you can hang them on your wall. I mean, you can make money from those people either direction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, do print. Yeah, and I think that's the perfect strategy of offering that alternative, which is the perfect combat to be like, well, yeah, like I have a handful of collectors who see the value in original painting. This is the one of a kind that I made physically by hand. However, I do also have prints and canvas print alternatives, um, whether you choose to say this or not, of like of people that see the value in just wanting the image, but don't need the original. Great. Awesome. I'll still take 150 bucks from you for a printed canvas print. If you right. don't want X hundred for the original, great. Win-win yeah. for everyone. So yeah. I love that idea of having that alternative of a um, reproduction print of a piece for those who don't necessarily see the value in paying for an original one of a kind piece. Yeah. Or don't have the budget and, for and it, but they want to. Yeah. You could like the same work of art, you could license it to home goods to put on, you know, canvas prints. They're going to sell like 800,000 of them or whatever. You could offer it, you know, on your website, direct to consumer, like a, you know, print on demand. And then, then you still own the original. <laughs> like you can still sell the original. Like it to me is just like, it's, it's kind of a no brainer. You know, you can put it on greeting cards. You can do whatever you want with it because it's yours and you can let people purchase it at that, that level. That's like a practical way to deal with it. Yeah. You know? I know some digital artists, watercolorists, wash artists, and that's exactly what they do. They put it on stickers, pins, bags, you name it. And they keep the original, whether it's on physical or digital, but they keep it forever. And they're like, yeah. it just the gift that keeps on giving. That's great. Exactly. <laughs> or you sell it, you know, you sell it to somebody, but you still own the rights to it, you know? And so I can buy it. I can buy your original. And because I'm a person that knows a painting is not just covering a spot in my wall. It is, you know, an emotional thing that I want to see this handmade piece of art. And I can put that painting on my wall in my kitchen or wherever, and I can own it. And you can be still selling the prints, you know, like it can, it can, it can go on forever.
<laughs> yeah, exactly. You said that, and there's actually one tiny little bit too that I'll add to like if you do get that rude person that's like I could get this at home goods. I just thought about this like right off the cuff. I was like, well, if you do it at home goods and you pay $20 and the overhead is like gigantic and everything else, I'm like, so if you buy it at home goods, the artist might get one dollar, if that. And it's like, if you're buying the original art, the added value to it is you are supporting an artist, like you are helping them pay their bills too. So it's like, there's also that little personal touch of like, it's not just going to a mass corporation and a tiny, tiny, maybe percentage going to the artist, or maybe they got paid flat out and they actually don't make anything extra on it. So yeah. 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 Well, and, and, and again, yeah, just again, though, to circle back, like when somebody says that, that is a comment on their own personal financial situation. It's a them problem. It's a them problem. It is not a you problem. It is them. They are saying, I have the money to buy a mass produced print at Walmart to put on my couch. But here I am looking at your work and I like it. And I recognize that it's something I would put in my house over my couch, but I can't afford it because I don't make enough money. And we live in capitalism, right? So the way we value things, and in many ways, the way we value ourselves for many people is monetarily. That is just, I don't like it, but I can't change it, right? Like that is just how it is. So that person standing in front of your work and saying that is basically saying, I'm not worthy of this because they don't make enough money. Yeah. And honestly, of course, they're probably doing that without even realizing that that is what they're doing. Um, And of course, as artists in a way of still wanting to cultivate a relationship with that potential future collector, they made it very clear they're not going to buy something today. Um, But I think that's where having multiple price point tiers, whether reproduction prints small pieces, large pieces is helpful and a great way to say like, well, I would maybe one day you can become a future collector of mine. I would love to stay connected um, because I do share behind the scenes on social media or I do offer free events for the community. If you want to sign up for my newsletter, then you can participate in those. I mean, kind of spinning it in that way because a lot of the times um, a different way of um people voicing that insecurity is not necessarily directing it at you, but I've had people come into my studio being like, oh man, I'd love to be able to afford that one day. Kind of in like a self-deprecating humor way of like them also being amazed of like, whoa, people can afford art that this is this expensive because again, they're like identifying themselves as a certain income. Um, And it's like, yeah, well, that's why I try to offer something for everyone. So a lot of people start with a print and then when they are able, we're able to upgrade to an original piece. I mean, kind of normalizing that reaction, I think is super helpful with, it then makes them a little more comfortable being like, yeah, before I was an artist, I would go to art fairs all the time and like dream of paintings that I could afford one day. Mm-hmm. Like really mm-hmm. kind of normalizing that reaction because it is just like any industry um, when you see the high ticket items versus the lower end of it. People being like, $10 for a hamburger, that's ridiculous. I can go to McDonald's and get three for $2. Um, and so it makes sense to have that. So normalizing the reaction is also super helpful for cultivating that relationship I have found. Um, But we are going to discuss some strategies for overcoming more of these pricing challenges. But first, let's take a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by our Level Up Artist courses. We understand that life as a modern artist can be both exciting and overwhelming. Plus, there's a lot of information out there. So what do visual artists actually need? We've spent countless hours of trial and error weeding through tons of information to find the gold so you don't have to waste your time going down those endless rabbit holes. In addition to weekly calls, we have created video course modules to cover everything from artist documents to exhibition prep, social media to technology, sales strategies, artist mindset, PDF resources, templates, and so much more. Ready to get started? Head on over to leveluppartists.com to learn more get immediate access and level up your career today. Welcome back everybody. 
So real quick, before we wrap up today's discussion, let's go ahead and discuss some of those practical strategies to establish a consistent pricing structure for artists and our business. We talked a little bit before the commercial break, um, but Cynthia, how would you um, approach researching your market to establish that baseline price of what can be used as a starting point if an artist is just getting started? Right. Well, so the very first thing you're going to have to research is your own expenses, right? Like, you know what it costs, you need to know, I'm assuming that you know what it costs you to live, to pay your bills, to, you know, what it costs you for the materials for your work, you know, what your throughput in a year or month or whatever your production time frame is, like what, what, how much it costs, how much you can make. So you need to know that number. Um, you literally take the number of how much it costs and you divide it by the number of how many pieces you can make. And then that number is what it costs you. It is not what you should start to sell things for. Super clear. Um, and then after you know that number, then you can start to look around, um, get your body out into galleries, into shops, into markets around you. If where you live there are not, and this, I talked to a lot of artists who live in rural areas or areas where there's like a flea market or something, but there's not really like a developed art world. Um, you might need to take a trip. You know, you might need to go to a, a city near you or an area near you where there are people that are spending money on, you know, if, if everybody's, if, if Walmart's the only place to buy stuff in your town, then that's not, you can't do your research there, right? You have to go to where there's handmade art being made and being sold. And then you look around and you look at pieces that are similarly sized to yours, similar materials um, by artists that have a similar sort of level of experience as well. So don't just go, you know, don't like, if you were an artist that was living in rural North Carolina, I do not advise you to go to New York City and go into say, you know, Gangason or something like to one of the huge galleries and like, you know, again, look at like an Amy Sheridan and be like, okay, well, let's see that is, you know, $3. Like that's not going to be helpful. Right. Like that's an artist who, you know, paints celebrities. Like you're, you're not that artist. So, um, so then you need, you need to go and, um, and look at artists that are sort of working in your same, at your same level, in your same sort of milieu and your same sort of, you know, materials and all of that. And then that's going to give you like your, your cost, that baseline number that is what it costs you to make art is sort of tells you where you like that. You, you can't just start there, right? You have to start above that. But then when you look at those other numbers, you're going to know, uh, you'll be able to figure out a number sort of somewhere in between. I know I just did a lot of hand gestures there for the people that <laughs> You're listening to this auditorily, you did not get the full value of my hand gestures, but um, so sorry. But, um, but like, um, but you know, you need to do that and you need to not feel bad about it, also, like, as you're doing that research, because it, you're not harming those other artists by going and looking at their work in the gallery. Like, I sometimes people feel weird about that, they feel like they're cheating or it's like industrial spying or something. No. It's not. No, not at all. That is totally fine. The other thing you should do is you should be looking when you're in those markets, when you're in those venues, in those galleries, in those shops, you want to be looking at um, the type of work that is selling, the type of work that they have listed. Um, you know, when you're at a market, look at the artists that are busier versus less busy, because um, that's just good information to keep in your hat for like when you go to sell. Like, do you want to go to those markets? Do you want to approach those galleries? Are they places where your work could sell? Um, you know, kind of paying attention to that. Um, if ideally, if you can go back to like, say a gallery, if you can go back pretty regularly, go back once a week and look for those little red sold stickers, you know, go back, you know, go, if you're at a market, go walk through like at the beginning of the market later during the day, towards the end of the day. And those artists that you think are sort of comparable to you, do they still have all the same stuff hanging in their, you know, have they sold a lot of it by the end of the show? Because that also gives you information like, is this gallery even worth it for me to look at? Is, you know, is mm -hmm. this market worth it for me? That's like a little side quest there. But, um, but definitely, you know, you want to do that kind of research. Um, and, and again, you're coming at that pricing, knowing your base price, knowing your base costs, knowing what your costs are. Because if you don't yeah. know those, you know, 
you don't have anything to do. Yeah, no, I love that. I think an advice I got early on from another artist that was ahead of me several years, she basically said, look at five artists that are local in your area and then look at five artists in cities that are near where you live, but not don't go to New York or California. Like, don't don't go too far. They're like in neighboring states, essentially. And then uh, spreadsheet them out, which is exactly what I did, because I was like, who wants to do all the math? So I just had a spreadsheet do the math for me. Thank you. Y'all can Google how to do that. Thanks. Um, Formulas. They're easy. But essentially, like literally, I looked at several artists. I knew they were all ahead of me a little bit. I looked at their CV. So I had an idea of how much further along they were. Mm -hmm. that's always a trick a lot of artists professional artists have their cvs on their website and you can see when they first started exhibiting their work don't look at when they graduated it could have been like 50 years ago look at when they started showing right um because sometimes they don't show until after they retire so anyways that's that's an, an easier number i feel like to look at so i did that and then i looked at some key sizes that i was interested in so i was like okay how much do they charge for an eight by ten or a 16 by 20, or a 36 by 36. And I literally just plotted the numbers in very, very straightforward. And then I just did a formula to see what their average was for that size. And then um, how much it was per square inch, which that's something that in our pricing episode, we talk about square inches versus linear inches. And that is one type of pricing, which is just based on the size. But <laughs> rolling back to what you said, Cynthia, it isn't just enough to see how much they're charging for it. You also have to backtrack into it what your costs are. Because if yeah. you have a fancy studio with a lot of overhead and a fancy car that you're paying for and five children that you need to feed, your costs might look a little bit different and you might have to charge a little bit different than say, you know, like that one guy that still lives in his mama's basement. That's, you know, again, comparable art. But his expenses are a heck of a lot less than yours are. And he can get away with charging a little bit less because he doesn't have that much overhead or that many expenses. Yeah, although, so. yeah. If I'd like to meet that guy, because I'd tell him just raise your prices because that's bad for the rest of us. <laughs> that's what I would say. Yes, I definitely agree. And that's one thing yeah. I wanted to bring in too. I love the idea of like finding that average of like comparables in your area, basically, because you may in that find that maybe one artist is drastically more expensive than the others mm -hmm. and one may be drastically underpriced than the others. And I think that's sometimes where artists can fall into a trap of they say, oh, well, this person markets their stickers for $2. I need to market I my stickers for $2, which I, without realizing, well, it costs me $1.50 to have this printed. So is Am I really making 50 cents off of this when I also have to ship the pieces? I designed the pieces, I upload them, I'm reordering. Like, is all of that really worth 50 cents? And so I think a trap some artists can get into if you don't look at enough comparable artists in your area is that mistake of assuming that that artist themselves are pricing correctly or are pricing profitably, um, which Obviously, we don't know the back end of everyone's businesses. So it may right. look like, oh, wow, they're selling out left and right. But if their prices are drastically low, is that really a business model that you want to be starting no. your company out as? So that's a great no. way to average out. And that we can kind of identify those people, too. Yeah, yeah. You mm -hmm. don't you don't want to model your business on that. And you also don't, you know, again, to go back like. The, I love that Adriana, the way that that takes the, um, from the artist side, like that takes the emotional thing that takes a lot of the emotion out of pricing, right. To figure mm -hmm. out those like square inch prices. Right. But the thing to remember is that again, to go back to that, what we see as producers is not what the consumer of artwork, the purchaser, the client, the collector sees their decisions are on the whole extremely emotional mm -hmm. extremely emotional so they're not in i i would be willing to bet a large sum of money that no nobody no collector purchaser of art has ever walked into a gallery and figured out the per inch price of this painting versus that painting right and then decided based on which one in the gallery was the cheapest per inch that is not how people buy art. 
People mm-hmm. buy art because they walk into a gallery and that piece of art hits them in the face and the heart and they have to own it. That is why they buy art. So they buy that painting at home goods because they want to cover the blank space over their couch. Those are two different experiences. Those are two different purchasing decisions. Those are not in the same classification in any way. So like as a pricer, you know, if I'm pricing artwork, I definitely want to be able to pull my emotions out of the picture. But, you know, remember that the purchaser's emotions are the number one point. Like Mm -hmm. that is want to hit their emotions in whatever way you can right? In whatever way you do, because that's how they make those purchases. Yeah, no. And I'm glad you said that. It's like, I remember, like, I mean, I like to read a lot of business books, right? Especially art business books, love them all. Um, But there's this idea too, that when it comes to fine art, you're not just selling a product, you're selling a product and a service in a way, right? Like that value that they perceive in it. Much in the same way, I like the saying, it's Lexus, not Toyota, when it comes to fine art. I mean, you can treat it like Toyota if you want, but it's like one is delivering. I mean, they both do the same thing, right? It's a car. It has four wheels. It gets you from A to B. But one is just utilitarian, right? Let's call the home goods one the utilitarian one that just covers the hole in the wall. And then for those artists that are trying to make a career of this, you're that Lexus that if that car breaks down, you know, you get a lint, like they lend you a car while they do your, your, your repairs and they bring you coffee and the newspaper, you know, like they go a little bit beyond that. And as a fine artist, like the kind of experience you're trying to give your collectors the same way. Like you tell them more about the story, you show them the behind the scenes, you spend all this time doing social media for them, for them to learn about you and your story. Like you don't just go, ta-da, like, <laughs> I mean, you could, but that's a different story. That's the Toyota method, which I'm kidding. Toyota does a lot of marketing, of course. But like, it's kind of that idea of it could be both. So you just answered my last question because I was going to ask you about um, some of the other pricing strategies we've we've talked about. And there's many, of course. Like, I know artists that want to exclusively charge on the amount of hours each piece takes. So the pricing can be wildly different because if they say, if this piece has a head, and I I know illustrators and portrait artists do this. If you want it to have head and torso, it's one price. The moment you add a hand, it's more. The moment you add a second hand, it's more. Like they're basing it on perhaps the complexity of it. And that's how they price. You have the square inchers. I'm square incher team, right? Like to me, that baseline makes a lot more sense. And then you have others that, you know, we kind of covered a little bit before where they don't necessarily just focus on the size, but like the value, like the the fish example or the 30% more example of like this sells, people see something in it. Therefore, it should be charged a little more. This is the Lexus of the lineup of paintings that I make. Why shouldn't I charge a little bit extra for it? You know what I mean? So you just answered that. But yeah, essentially reminder, you know, folks like, you know, the value that the art brings to the collectors. It's also not something we can predict. Bringing it back to something you mentioned way, way earlier of that idea of like, it's based on do they want it and can they afford it? And sometimes, you know how you explain the example of the two paintings, the one you love and the one that you're like "Eh," about a lot of times the one we love is the one that doesn't sell anyway. Right, right. You buy the one that you're like, oh, that one's okay. And somebody's like, I have to have it. I love it. And you're like, why? Why that one? Buy the one I I love. It's anyway. So that that's that's a whole the one you love can continue to hang on your studio wall and you can enjoy it. So um I do want to circle back to, and this is tangential to what we're discussing. Um, but so you mentioned that like, you know, you were given the advice to study artists that were in sort of contiguous states, like not go all the way to California or, you know, New York City or whatever. But, um, you know, we're here in North Carolina. So you're going to study like Virginia and South Carolina and Georgia. But I, I will say that I know of several really successful artists who um, live here in North Carolina and rarely are they interested in pursuing sales here in this area? Um, And so why would that be? Um, So you could have work that speak to particular geographical regions or, you know, 
styles that are in geographical regions. Or, um, you know, in one case, I know an artist who really prefers to sell um, to several galleries that are on the West Coast, even though, weirdly, this artist paints seascapes that are almost exclusively East Coast seascapes, obviously, because North Carolina, right? Like, go to the beach. <laughs> and, but they sell on the West Coast because on the West Coast, their work is much more valuable. So... And this is an artist who's, she's really, really smart, like knows her prices, knows what it costs her to produce her work, has been working as an artist for decades, right? And so she sells, she has no galleries here, is not interested in them, is totally doesn't care, like is an anonymous human being in her home in North Carolina, because she puts her paintings in a van and drives them out to the West Coast every few months. And there they sell for, you know, probably five to 10 times what they would sell for here. So for her, from her perspective, she's absolutely not interested in courting the market in her backyard. Um, and, I, and I think it's a wise decision that she made, right? Like she knew, she knew where the clientele was and she, you know, managed to connect with them and that's what she does. Um, so if you are working and you have work that speaks to a different area than where you live. And I know your, your podcast listeners are all over. So, you know, maybe your work feels like Western art, you know, and you would do better in a gallery in Jackson Hole, Wyoming than you would in Asheville or, you know, Charlotte or Raleigh or something. So, you know, then those, that's where you need to be looking and you need to be looking at the prices in that area as well, or in that sort of realm, you know, if your work doesn't, kind, you know, if you look in galleries around your area and you're like, I don't see work that is a lot similar to mine. Sometimes that's great. That means that your work is just really different and, you know, it, you have a specific niche, but also think to yourself, like, where would I see this? Like what, where mm -hmm. does this look like it would hang? Because that might be a better market for you than trying to, you know, focus on this area. I, I actually worked, um, so I teach classes through Triangle Artworks, we mentioned this, and we had this great artist who was in one of our classes a couple of years ago, and his work was like super like tropical, and he just, he had weirdly had moved here from a tropical place from Florida, and he's like, I'm just trying to find galleries, he couldn't find any galleries here, and then, you know, I reconnected with him just, you know, couple weeks ago and he's like I just gave up he's like I live here and I love it but I just sell my work in Miami like that's where my work sells <laughs> like you know yeah. and he was like he spent a lot of time when he moved here feeling rejected and emotionally like you know well, I can't sell my work here nobody wants it and then he realized like he just needs to sell his work where his work sells you know and that's where his work has the greatest like value even though he jokes that like he has some people who bought his work in Miami who live in North Carolina like they were on vacation and they wanted, you know. That is hilarious. Yeah. That is hilarious, yeah. but it also brings up a good point of like, so we've had, you know, again, back to the books, but also like gallerists interviews that we've had on the podcast, since it is all about relationship, like the advice that I got was based on when you're very new starting out, start local, right? So it made sense. If I'm in North Carolina and I start looking just at California, can I even afford to ship? You know, if my prices are low when I'm starting out. So it makes sense. But that does bring a good point that if you have established relationships in a different city or state that people resonate in that place, then you actually kind of have that bridge to go back. Like, let's say, you know, an artist grew up in California, like in your example, say that other one or has family there or whatnot, then you actually have an excuse to go over there. And then whenever you're there, build those gallery relationships, build those, like get an art consultant that actually builds those relationships on your behalf, right? Like do that, but you're right. I mean, it doesn't hurt to look elsewhere, which I did, but it threw my math completely off when I did it. And that's why I had to discard them because some of yeah. the artists I looked yeah. at, I was like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. But then there was also the challenge that I faced is something that I, Jackie actually says kind of often on the podcast. Um, I don't know who said it originally, but there we are. The don't compare your beginning to somebody else's middle. And that's yeah. the other thing I was encountering that the artists I was looking up to had already been doing this 15, 20 years. Like they've already changed their prices five bazillion times. 
not mm-hmm. comparable, you know, like it's tough to find comparables, but yeah. Yeah. I, I do like that idea of like, maybe like speaking of sayings, obviously I love sayings, not that y'all can tell, but you know, that saying of like dress for the job that you want, then it's almost like if you're, if you are set on a New York market or a California market or some hot other high-end market, then see what they price at and make sure you're comparable to them. Assuming the quality of your work is also comparable. <laughs> right. Wishful well, thinking is not enough. Yeah, yeah. And that goes back to that fact that art is a blue collar job. You've got yep. to put the time in. You've got to, you know, you, you're not, you do, or or you don't. I mean, you know, I, I, I can't make the rules for anybody, but I'm just saying if you really want to produce at that high level and to have your work represent the best you can do then you've got to put those hours in. So when I have somebody who comes in and they're like at that, you know, they're that apprentice, like, you know, princess plumber can put your toilet together, but do you want them to do your whole house? Probably not. Right. Like, you know, so if somebody has come, you know, like I'm talking to an artist and they're at at that apprentice level, oftentimes I'm like, well, you need to like, um, take a bunch of these drawings and make them into greeting cards and sell them at markets for a while and work on your more serious stuff. You know, let the greeting cards pay for your work on your more serious stuff, but don't keep trying. The serious stuff is not serious enough yet. You don't, you don't have enough technique yet. You know, um, like figure out if you're an artist, you're creative. You, you know, you may have work that you're just, is not ready to sell is not economical to sell, whatever, like figure out something that will sell. Like almost every artist I talk to has something they do that is marketable or something that a portion of that could be turned into something marketable that could, you know, help them pay for some of their life as they get to that point where they move up. You know, just like the apprentice plumber works for someone else for a while, right? And just Mm -hmm. puts, they just put the nuts on the toilets. Like they just, they don't do the whole thing, right? Like they're just like attaching faucets and stuff. They're not doing the whole thing because they're not ready. You know, as an artist, you, you may also need to do that for some time as well. You got to find some way to make your, to make that process occur, to make that development occur so that you're there, so that you become a master and you can really, you know, justify that, justify those prices. Absolutely. I feel like that is the perfect mic drop moment to wrap things up on. Um, And I know one big takeaway that I will be taking with me is that, of course, inevitably, pricing artwork is challenging. There is no one size fits all. But hopefully after listening uh, to this conversation, some of our listeners will have a better sense of what they need to do in order to feel more confident about their pricing. Um, And Having that emotion part of it is a normal part of the process, being a little bit unsure about pricing um, and figuring out what works best for you as an art business, because there are various things to consider at every stage. um, But by understanding these emotional, societal, and more practical dimensions of pricing, we as artists can navigate that conversation better, navigate that business practice better, and create that pricing structure that better reflects the value of the artwork that we're bringing to the world. So Cynthia, thank you so much for all of the wonderful advice that you gave in the podcast today. Thank you guys. I like, I could, I can kind of geek out over this stuff and like, you know, philosophize over like, you know, as artists, we're trapped here in capitalism and (laughs) we don't love it. Or maybe we do love it. I don't know. I don't judge, but um, but you know, like we, I, I can talk about this stuff all day and I love to, <laughs> so thank yeah. you. Thank yeah. You for yeah. And for the sake of brevity, like, you know, we're not going to go into all the nitty gritties. Cause like you said, we can definitely keep going and, you know, just want to shed some light to, you know, light at the end of the tunnel for some artists that are like, but I already said it and I did it wrong. And I did the math and the math is wrong and I'm under what I should be charging. Once I did the comparables, whatnot, light at the end of the tunnel folks, like, it's adaptable. It's not fixed. Your formula can change over time. Like maybe don't quadruple it overnight if you already have a collector base. Like that's a whole nother bag of chips, right? But like you can evaluate your price at least annually, you know, sometimes every quarter, make cost of living adjustments. You know, if you're selling out too quickly, like we mentioned earlier in the episode, or you're being accepted in some major exhibitions on some big art institutions, you know, 
there's a lot of different things throughout your art career that will be indicators, kind of like little little neon signs flashing on and off here and there going, time to go up, time to go up, because everything goes up and your prices need to go up too, right? Like, unless you're going to do this for free, like you, you, you need to get paid. So um, as we wrap this up, Cynthia, do you have any last words of advice on this topic? If you have one thing that artists could do, like one piece of action, anything that uh, we can leave them with? Well, I would say that, you know, like you said, you know, when you need to raise your prices and the time to do it is right now. Like, don't, uh, don't say, well, I'll do it at the end of this year or I'll do it, you know, after X or I'll do it once I've sold out all these pink paintings or whatever. Um, if, if you have, if you have a product, if you have some group of your work that sells really fast, bump the price up on that 20 to 30% right now, immediately. If you have, if you can't keep up with demand, bump that price up 20 to 30%. If you have, if you're having a really, really good show, I literally just talked to a, an artist yesterday who told me that she is in the, she regularly will reprice her work between days on a multi-day show. She will come into a show and, you know, if it's, if something's selling, she just prices it up for the next day and sees if it still sells at the higher price. So the time to change your prices is now. Um, but remember, you got to do the math on your baseline. So um, most artists that I talk to aren't covering their baseline. The reason that there's such a thing as like the starving artist myth is because artists are afraid that they don't, they're afraid to say what they deserve and what they need. Mm -hmm. So don't be afraid to say what you deserve and what you need. Add your costs up, know what your costs are, know what, how much work you can make in a time period. That's just your baseline. Then you're going to, your prices need to be much higher above that. So, and if you're the apprentice plumber, now. yeah, change your prices now and do the math. <laughs> so. And if you're the apprentice plumber, don't try to oh. charge like the pro. No, exactly. Well, yeah. And, <laughs> and I, you know, for most, not yet, artists, not yet. You'll get yeah. there. You'll get there. You'll get there. Yeah. 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 I love it. Well, Cynthia, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Real quick before you go, um, how can listeners stay connected with you and Triangle Artworks after they listen to this episode? Well, triangleartworks.org. Um, you can go find Triangle Artworks. Um, we have resources for artists. Um, we work primarily in the Southeastern United States, most ex especially um, we work in North Carolina, in the Triangle region of North Carolina. But we do video, um, like digital classes and things. So triangleartworks.org is probably the best way. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm Cynthia Dice at, I'm Cynthia, CynthiaDice.com is my website. Um, I am on all social media as Cynthia Dice, but don't expect to see anything from me because I'm busy and I, I spend too much time talking to artists to post on social media. Although I keep saying I'm going to re-engage, but you know, life is yeah. busy. Yeah. yeah, just connect with her through Triangle Artworks. Yeah, so Triangle Artworks. Connect with that way. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, we'll sure we'll be sure to link all those things in the show notes. In the meantime, if you want to stay connected with us in between episodes, share your feedback or have a question you would like for us to answer on the podcast, you can reach us through social media. I'm at Amay Art across all platforms. And I'm at J Sanders Studio across all platforms. And if you want to follow the podcast, we are at Level Up Artists on Instagram. You can also visit levelupartists.com to become one of our podcast supporters. This will give you access to amazing off-the-record conversations with our guests, the artist community platforms, and it helps to keep the podcast going. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.